The Bible is an enculturated book. That is to say, it was written over many centuries in particular times and places, and naturally the Bible reflects the cultures of those times. Now none of this is to deny the fact that the Bible is also breathed out by God. It is inspired, every word of it, inerrant, true, relevant, sufficient, authoritative, for everyone who reads it, particularly Christians today living in London in 2023. Even so, Christians in London in 2023 sometimes need to work a little extra hard to understand the imagery and the enculturated meaning that we find in certain parts of Scripture. And that is certainly true this evening. I imagine that if we were to pool all of our life experiences, However much knowledge we may have in this room, we may be a little thin on first century sheep farming in the Middle East. Maybe more knowledge about that here, in fact, than where I come from in the United States. And yet that is precisely what fills our text this morning. Imagery from first century sheep farming, as it teaches us about Jesus. Notice in our text this evening, there's no real narrative. There's no rise and fall. There's not even much dialogue. It's one extended illustration. Verse 6 calls it a figure of speech. All of it draws on sheep farming in Israel. And so, as we consider this text tonight, we have to get into this old world. But as we do, what we're going to discover is that these words are as fresh and as relevant to you tonight as when they were first written. I want to look at this text with you in four points, and uh, before we begin, I must say I'm indebted to Don Carson, a New Testament scholar, for his commentary and his writings and work on John's Gospel, his wonderful work on this passage. Carson will have influenced a number of the comments I'll make on it. But as you listen to these four points from this text, I want you to consider what exactly are they saying about Jesus, and how do they apply to you particularly? The first thing that Jesus tells us about himself is that he is known by his sheep. He's known by his sheep. You will know that the scriptures speak of the Lord's people brought into the church as sheep. Now let's think first about sheep farming in the ancient world. Typically, the sheep would be held in some kind of wall enclosure at night. And this enclosure sheepfold would typically be attached to a home although larger sheepfolds could be out in the field, and they would be held together, perhaps even multiple flocks belonging to different families, and the families would come together and hire a watchman, a gatekeeper, to stand at night to protect the flocks from threats and preying animals. And then in the morning, as the sun was rising, this this bleary-eyed gatekeeper would keep an eye out for the particular shepherds of each flock who would come to the enclosure and lead his flock and his flock only out to pasture. The watchman would recognize the rightful shepherds of each particular flock and would open the gate only to them. And you might have seen a documentary Maybe in Scotland, using a dog to round up sheep from behind, or driving from in Texas, a cattle rancher on horseback, rounding up the cattle to move it. But that's not the way that it happened in the Middle East. 
No, in, in this day, each shepherd would have a distinct call for his flock that the flock would recognize. So you can imagine three to four flocks all mixed up together in this walled enclosure, and the shepherd would give his particular call and lead out his own sheep. This is what Jesus is saying in our text tonight, isn't it? Listen again to the opening verses. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who does not enter the sheepfold by the door, but climbs in by another way, that man is a thief and a robber. But he who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. To him, the gatekeeper opens. The sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them in. Notice the shepherd knows his sheep by name, and they know him. Verse 4 says, they know his voice. This is how Jesus characterizes his relationship with his own. And this knowledge of the shepherd, this heeding of the shepherd's voice, is protecting to the sheep. Because it makes them discerning. Verse 5 says, a stranger they will not follow, but they will flee from him. For they do not know the voice of strangers. Isn't this a wonderful illustration of the way that salvation works? God has designed it out, out in the cacophony of the world where countless thieves seek to steal and many strangers are calling you. The gospel of Jesus Christ goes out and for so many in this world this, this gospel is, is a waste of time. It's, it's utter foolishness to heed the call of God's own word. But, but scripture tells us that when God the Holy Spirit works by and with that word in our hearts. He breaks our stony hearts, enlivens our hearts, and enables us to recognize that word for what it is. It's true, relevant, powerful, drawing us to the Savior. And it is by that word, and through the Holy Spirit, that God himself unites us to Christ as our Savior through faith. Or if you've ever sensed when you're worshiping here, you're hearing the word preached, or maybe when you're studying the word on your own, you think to yourself, something different is going on. This isn't just one person speaking. God is doing something through his word. It's by the power of the Holy Spirit that God in the moment opens your ears and, and opens the eyes of your heart to see who Jesus really is. You see him, and you see him with eyes of faith, and you, you say in your heart, yes, you have promised to receive us, poor and sinful though we be. You have mercy to relieve us, grace to cleanse, and power to free. Indeed, Jesus has all of this for every one of us. And Jesus is saying that this is how salvation works. He, he calls his own out of the world. But Jesus is doing something more in this text as well, isn't it? He's, he's not only describing the internal spiritual call of the Holy Spirit to beget faith and bring you to Christ, but he's drawing a contrast. Jesus draws a contrast here between himself and the neglectful, even devious, previous religious leaders in Israel. That's after all what the the sheepfold really is here. It's the sheepfold of Judaism. And throughout the Old Testament, God's chosen nation had suffered terribly under terrible, rebellious shepherds and watchmen. I want to read to you just a couple of Old Testament passages that recount this for us. First from Jeremiah 23. This is what God says 
Woe to the shepherds who destroy and scatter the sheep of my pasture, declares the Lord. Therefore thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, concerning the shepherds who care for my people. You have scattered my flock and have driven them away, and you have not attended to them. Behold, I will attend to you for your evil deeds, declares the Lord. And then this other one from, from Isaiah chapter 56. God says, all you beasts of the field, come to devour all you beasts in the forest. God is saying, it's, it's open season on my sheep. Why is that the case? What God says, his watchmen are blind. They are all without knowledge. They are shepherds who have no understanding. They have all turned to their own way, each to his own gain, one and all. Come, they say, let me get wine. Let us fill ourselves with strong drink, and tomorrow will be like this day, great beyond measure. God is rebuking the, particularly the false prophets in Israel's history, the false shepherds, those who were asleep at the watch, those who allowed God's people to be exposed to foreign armies, who didn't call them back from their sin to faith in the God of Israel. Now to be sure, there were faithful prophets that God raised up who courageously spoke the true word of God to the people, but God is telling his false prophets who failed to call the people to repentance. He's saying, you are all strangers, not shepherds. You are thieves, not watchmen. And as we fast forward to John chapter 10, in the middle of John's gospel, Jesus is picking up on all of these Old Testament texts, and he's saying, I am different. I am different. I know the sheep. My sheep know me. And friends, if there's any third Old Testament text that stands behind John chapter 10, it's the text that we read earlier tonight from Ezekiel 34. Let me read just a, a portion of it again. It begins the way those Old Testament passages I just read began. The word of the Lord came to me, son of man, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel, prophesy and say, even the shepherds, thus says the Lord God, Ah, shepherds of Israel, who have been feeding yourselves, should not the shepherds feed the sheep? What have they been doing? You eat the fat, God says. You clothe yourselves with the wool. You slaughter the fat ones, but you do not feed the sheep. The weak you have not strengthened, the sick you have not healed, the injured you have not bound up, the strang you have not brought back, the lost you have not sung. And you read along in Ezekiel 34 until you get to something you need. Listen to what God says He will do. Behold, I, I myself will search for my sheep and will seek them. As a shepherd seeks out his flock when he is among his sheep that have been scattered, so will I seek out my sheep, and I will rescue them from all the places where they have been scattered. And God goes on, and this first person pronoun is repeated again and again and again. God says what He Himself will do. I will bring them out from the peoples. I will feed them with good pasture. I myself will be the shepherd of my sheep. And I myself will make them lie down, declares the Lord God. I will seek the lost. I will bring back the stray. I will bind up the injured. I will strengthen the weak. The fat and the strong I will destroy. See, friends, when Jesus, when Jesus is positioning himself as the shepherd of the sheep in verse 2, the one who knows his sheep, the one who is known by his sheep, he is declaring that he himself is fulfilling everything that Isaiah has said God himself would do. Jesus is coming as, 
as Yahweh God Almighty, as the, as the divine Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, anointed to be the Messiah, to come to His own, to save them, to keep them, to protect them. And all this is what it means for Jesus, not just to be a good shepherd, but to be the good shepherd. He is the divine Messiah. And in all of this, we learn in our text that, that His hearers did not understand what He was saying to them. And so Jesus goes on. He's still drawing on sheep farming, but He shifts the illustration a little bit. The second thing that we learn about Jesus as the shepherd, not only is He known by His sheep, but secondly, Jesus cares for His sheep. He cares for His sheep. Notice He says this, Truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. Verse 7. What does he mean? Well, again, we have to go back to Middle Eastern sheep farming. We are now, Carson says, away from the enclosure and out in the field. Perhaps we're far from home, where there is no fortified enclosure, so that the faithful shepherd would actually make an enclosure, maybe against a, a rock wall with a, a bunch of branches, and he would leave an opening for the sheep to go in. And at night, the faithful shepherd would himself lie down in the gap so that he would both be shepherd and door. If you notice a number of things uh, with this illustration, number one, there was only one door. Only one door. Uh, Jesus is saying, as he says elsewhere, you, you must come to God through him as the door, or you may not come at all. But all who enter through the door that is Jesus Christ finds that the care he gives as a shepherd is exclusive and unique and wonderful. Notice what he says in verse 9. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. Okay, Jesus is, is making the illustration a little bit more explicit, but he's, but he's not letting go of the metaphor. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved. And then he uses the language of going in and out and finding pasture. It's, it's the language of security, of abundance, of provision, of full supply. And Jesus is saying, this is what happens when you come to God through me. When you receive and rest in me as your shepherd, you come out and find abundant supply. He clothes us in his righteousness. He frees us from the dominion of sin. He rescues us from the darkness of death. He makes us God's own children. And as Ezekiel 34, when we stood behind the earlier verses, surely Jesus has in mind here also Numbers 27, 16 and 17. In that passage, Moses prays to God as he leads the people through the wilderness, that we read, Moses spoke to the Lord, saying, Let the Lord, the God of the spirits of all flesh, appoint a man over the congregation, who shall go out before them and come in before them, who shall lead them out and bring them in, that the congregation of the Lord may not be as sheep that have no shepherd. You think personally for a moment, you have a sense, a personal experiential sense of the uniqueness of the abundant care that Jesus gives. Maybe as you think back over the past year, think of all that, that He has done. The Lord Jesus gives you forgiveness of all of your sins as you 
rest in Him. He's given you His Word to sustain you. He's given you a church to love, other believers to link arms with. He's, he's given His Spirit to guide you. He's given you unexpected provision of life and of hell. And no doubt as many of us have gone through countless trials, certainly trials that are unimaginable represented here, can you not say in your own life, it's never been true. Lord Jesus has been my faithful through every aspect of life. He's been my faithful friend all my days. And you know that if you were to breathe your last breath, you would know that he would keep you through death and bring you to himself. This is the kind of shepherd we have. One who cares for his Jesus is saying that the choice to, to follow him versus the choice to follow any other purveyor of false teaching could not be more stark. Look at what he says in verse 10. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. Well, who, who is this that steals and kills and destroys? say that it's everything, everyone who denies Christ and his gospel. It could be false religion, Islam, Hinduism, Buddhism, Mormonism, a liberal, modern, so-called Christianity. It could be secular saviors, politicians, all manner of cults or heresies. It could be addictions, sinful escapes, fantasies. It could be the silent call of expressive individualism. The notion that the final end and goal of life is simply to have psychological satisfaction, even if, even if we deny reality. And Jesus is saying all of this ultimately destroys you. And he says there are, there are people, tragically sometimes even in the church, who not only do not care whether they degrade and exploit the sheep, but, but who are willing agents of that kind of destruction. You can think of anyone who presents an anti-Christian view of human nature, the human good, or human dignity, or human salvation, or human destiny. You can think of corrupt leaders, dictators, certainly, the, the Stalins, the Maoists, the Putins of the world. You can think of swindlers. Prosperity preachers, ideologues, heretics. And, and, and we find this not only out there in the world, but there's a warning and a call for those in here in the church, or even leaders of the church, because, because the Apostle Peter will pick up on the theme as he describes what a pastor should be. The word pastor means shepherd. Writes this, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eager, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. John Calvin wrote, They among are good shepherds who lead men straight to Christ. New Testament scholar Leon Morris says something similar. He says, All who seek to bring life to others, but who do not themselves enter life through Christ, stand condemned. Of course, this doesn't mean you can't learn from people. It doesn't mean you can't have a boss or a mentor or a friend. But you dare not let them lead. You dare not let them give you the promise of life 
if that promise comes apart from Christ. He's the one who cares for his sheep. He's known by his sheep. He cares for his sheep. And the life that he gives is not only unique and abundant, it comes by way of a third thing we learn from our text. Jesus dies for his sheep. He dies for his sheep. He says in verse 11, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Now we've already seen what a good shepherd does. A good shepherd knows his sheep, calls them by name, leads them, provides for them. He's not in it for the money. A good shepherd doesn't exploit the sheep for shameful gain. So when we come to verse 12, we read that, that a good shepherd is not like a hired hand who runs when he sees the wolf coming. We might think that this is what Jesus does. Uh, that he simply doesn't uh, run away when the wolf comes. He's like young David when he was the shepherd boy who stood his ground at the face of the threat, who was willing to risk his life for the sake of the sheep. We might conclude, therefore, that the good shepherd is prepared to give his life. And certainly that's true. But again, Jesus is taking this illustration and he's stretching it almost to the breaking point because what Jesus is saying is that he's not only willing to risk his life, he actually intentionally gives his life for his Jesus himself lays down his life for his sheep, and not to leave them exposed to the threats of other animals, but he lays down his life so that we can be his sheep. It is in the very act of laying down his life with total authority, as he says. He lays it down, and he has authority to take it up again on the third day, resurrection life, so as to secure the salvation that he gives when he calls us by name. We come to the one who has once for all died and is raised forevermore, and who by his dying and his rising frees us from the clutches of sin and Satan and death. Jesus says this is the charge that he's received from his Father from before the foundation of the world, that he would be the good shepherd who would rescue his sheep through dying and rising and call them to his Isaiah 53 puts it so All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. How does Paul put it in the New Testament, Colossians 1.14? He says, Jesus canceled the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, aside, nailing it to the cross. Friends, it's because Jesus is such a good shepherd. We can say that he paid it all. All of them I owe. Sin has left a crimson stain, but he washed it white as snow. Jesus is not just a good shepherd, he is the good shepherd. He's the only one who could do it. And he's the only one because he alone is the eternal divine son who took human flesh to himself. And verse 16 then tells us the really good news. It says, Jesus says he has other sheep that he must bring. See, the first sheepfold was the sheepfold of Israel, the sheepfold of Judaism. And now Jesus expands that sheepfold to include the whole world. And he's saying there are non-Jews. There's 
countless multitude of people, people who are bought and paid for by his life, whom he's now bringing into union with himself. Verse 16, so there will be one fold, one shepherd. So my question to you tonight is, are you in that fold? Are you a member of it? Have you heard the shepherd's voice? Have you come through the door that he is? Are you following him? Can you say today that Jesus' dying and rising has made any difference in your own life? Jesus is known by his sheep. Jesus cares for his sheep. Jesus dies for his sheep. Fourth and final, we learn that Jesus changes his sheep. He changes his sheep. Verses 19 through 21. The Jews listening to Jesus know all about sheep farming, but they do not yet know him. We read in verse 20 that there is a division among them, as is so often the case in John's Gospel. Many of them said he is a demon and is insane. Why listen to him? And others said, These are not the words of one who is oppressed by a demon. Can a demon open the eyes of now they're not quite there yet, but they're recognizing that there's something about Jesus. And when they ask this final question, can a demon open the eyes of the blind? We are reminded that John chapter 10 follows John chapter 9. Because in that chapter, as you may know, Jesus heals a man who is blind from birth. He gives him physical sight, tells him to wash in the pool of Siloam. And yet eventually Jesus gives him spiritual sight as well. And through the course of the narrative of John chapter 9, we get a glimpse into the treatment that this man receives from the hand of the Pharisees. Not only do they reject the fact even that he was blind from birth, but they even haul in his parents to interrogate him, to see if in fact this man really was blind. They eventually kick this man out of the synagogue, demonstrating that they are the kind of false shepherds that Jesus has been talking about. And then toward the end of John chapter 9, we see these wonderful words. That outside the center, outside the religious center of Israel, Jesus finds him. Jesus finds him. Calls him to himself. He says, do you believe in the Son of Man? The man says, and who is he that I may believe? Jesus says, it is I. I'm speaking to you. Well, this is a theme in John's Gospel, isn't it? That Jesus changes those whom he calls to himself. He gives new spiritual sight to his sheep, and then he goes about changing them. And as many in our text call Jesus insane, and others question him, Jesus is still in the business of calling, caring, saving, and changing his sheep. The man who was born blind was changed through his encounter with Jesus when he heard his words. Back in John chapter 3, Nicodemus is changed as Jesus talks to him about the new birth. The Samaritan woman at the well, John chapter 4, is changed. Jesus told her about the living water that he could give. The very next chapter, in John chapter 11, we would see Lazarus gets changed dramatically as Jesus calls him. What about you? And how Jesus is seeking to change you. How is he seeking to transform you to be more like himself? This is what the church does. This is the place where Jesus changes his sheep. 
Carson speaks of the church so helpfully, not as a not as a club that you get recruited into, but you come with disparate interests and you have something in common here. And so so you come here with pre-existing interests and you just you just sort of stay where you are as you come together. No, no. Well, the church is to use the language of our text. The church is a sheepfold where Jesus Christ, the good shepherd, is is calling his own by name. He's loving them, he's caring for them, and he's changing them. If you know him, you know that you're a, a sheep who is known by Christ, who is cared for, called by Christ, who's redeemed by his death, who's being sanctified by his life. Brothers and sisters, may the Lord in 2023 take us into a people more and more who day by day can say together, the Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want for him. For the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. But our good shepherd has come that we may have life. Have it abundantly. Let's pray. Gracious Father, we do pray that you would take this word and seal it upon our hearts that we might know the Lord Jesus is our own good and faithful shepherd. Let us know the power of his life and death and resurrection that we might live this day and all of the days that you give us for his glory. In Jesus' name.